This meeting is being recorded, ladies and gentlemen, episode number 38 of the Roses and Rhetoric podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Hackett. Putting me as always, my charming co-host. Joseph Stanford. Joe, we have a fun topic today. It's another chapter of the beginning of infinity. In particular, it is a chapter on optimism. Now, I think if I remember correctly, I have been building up this chapter for uh, quite some time now. So I'm excited to hop into it. But uh, as always, before we begin, we must begin with a review of the week. So, Joe, how was your week? I know that you were doing some traveling. How, how did it go? And uh, where are you now? Where in the world is Joseph Stanford? <laughs> uh, currently back in the uh, the home podcast base in Portland, Oregon. Uh, good week. Have a few updates. Um, I quit my job this last week, so I'm officially unemployed. To hire Joe's resume includes being a charming co-host on the Roses and Rhetoric podcast. He's also a co-founder of the Rose Rhetoric podcast. Those are all management skills, Joe. Those are two uh, very big accolades, I would say. But no, I'm not looking for any jobs. So Very good. Well, where, offers. When, uh, when do you stop working officially? When is your last date? Uh, my last day was yesterday. So. Okay. So you're on the, on the uh, run. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> I'm on the run. I'm on the run from something. Yeah, sure. So, very good. Well, that's exciting. Um, you've been working toward this for a long time, and I know you have a lot on your to-do list uh, with your with your uh, time off, so to speak. So it'll be fun to keep tabs and to see how things progress as uh, this new chapter of your life begins. So we wish you the best of luck. I'm very optimistic. Very good. That's what I want to hear, Joe. That's what I want to hear. Well, Joe, as you know, we live in dangerous times. Uh, there comes a point in every driver's life where they see a lone biker on the road. The only thing standing between that biker and a hit and run is a moral compass that has yet to crack. And um, I think with that, we can hop right into our chapter discussion today. I wanted to start by giving you two better answers to good questions you asked the last time you and I were together. We were talking Great. about uh, the concept of universality. And you asked a question I thought actually required more thought than I gave at the time. I was thinking about this a lot. I was traveling myself last week and I had some time on an airplane to think. And I was thinking about the question you asked, which is why, why does universality matter? Why does it matter? I thought, you know, that's a good question. And we spent some time last episode talking about the utilitarian value of universality, which is, I think, still where my answer lies. But I actually reread part of that chapter. And I think the best, the best way to, to uh, appreciate why universality matters is, is, I guess, maybe to spend more time talking about what universality is, and in particular, where universality comes from. And so the examples in the book is basically a situation where human beings have tools that they are using for some purpose. And then as a slightly new purpose comes along, they make a small change to that tool. And that process continues until, without really meaning to do so, they created some new tool that could then be used for a whole host of problems that weren't even conceived of at the time they were making that tinkering. And mm -hmm. so I guess my, my answer would be the value of a universal tool 
is that it has the ability to handle problems that haven't been discovered yet. And so as we find ourselves on the path of conjecture and criticism, that will involve some kind of problem solving. And when we have a universal tool at our disposal, it allows us to handle problems that we assume exist in some abstract way, but we have no idea what they are. And so it broadens the problems that we find ourselves able to solve conceivably in some infinite way, um, but even in more limited examples of universality, certainly to a greater extent than we would be able to imagine at the time. And as we progressed as a scientific civilization, we began to appreciate these tools for that ability and then began seeking them out in particular because we understood the value of solving problems that we hadn't yet encountered. So that was going to be my, my better answer to universality. Uh, I thought that, that was a good question. I thought it was worth revisiting. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a good point, some good framework for uh, this next chapter that we're going to talk about today as well. Yes, and um, in, in particular, the role of error correction in a scientific civilization, which we'll get to in, as we talk about this chapter. The other thing that we were talking about, which even more ties in to this notion of a, civilized, a scientific civilization, is this notion of error correction. And, you know, essentially the, the, the punchline of optimism, or rather of a scientific civilization, is a, a civilization that puts a premium on being able to detect and correct errors. And to do that, you need to have a system that allows for error correction. And that leads us to um, universal systems, but that they share a characteristic that they're digital. And that when we're using a digital system, we have a way of localizing the answer to, of the output to some particular value. And that allows us to avoid the accumulation of errors. And mm -hmm. I thought that was worth revisiting as well because We'll be talking about error correction today, but not in such a not, not in such a specific way. But it's important to understand that these things do have, you know, if you will, you know, tangible meaning. That it, it means something to say that a system can correct for errors and that it's universal. That these have um, a kind of a, a a practical application of these things. So I thought those were two things worth revisiting from, yeah, guess, you know, two episodes ago, maybe episode thirty-six, uh, but that were important for today's conversation on optimism. Yeah, I think that's a that's a pretty good segue in terms of talking about what the pragmatic benefits of uh, an error corrective system are. And one of the big examples I know that he used was of a, a democracy, of a democratic system for governing right. people. And he's saying like a lot of people think democracies are great because it's like, oh, it gives power to the people, like people have power. But in reality, that's not the true benefit of democracy. He argues, he says that uh, it's more of a better error correcting system. Right. Kind of, uh, you know, instead of just having one monarch that just calls all the shots and gets right. to make all the rules. Right. You have like a system of checks and balances that, um, and I think there was some quote about like the best government systems are the ones that, that allow error correction or that prevent yeah. bad ideas. Like, it's, it's, it's almost like damage control. You don't want a government that gives you good ideas necessarily. You just want one that doesn't screw up. That doesn't right. give you bad. bad yes. Yes. And, and one that, you know, allows for not even, you know, putting the ideas, but even just the, the people that when you put someone in the office, it's, can we get them out? Yes. We vote them out, you know, something like that too. So it's not about getting, it's not about knowing the right answer. It's about this idea of accepting that you will make mistakes and then giving yourself a way to correct for those mistakes is a much more stable path forward than assuming you won't make mistakes and then being surprised when they occur and having no way to address them. 
So why don't we start by giving the definition of optimism? You have that in your book by chance. I think we could get that a word for word definition of optimism yeah. and then we're there. Yeah, so let's let, let, let's give that to set the, the, the framework for today's discussion. And it is a slightly different uh, definition than what you would think it would be. But um, here, I'll quote from, from David here. He says, optimism in the sense that I have advocated is the theory that all failures, all evils are due to insufficient knowledge. So uh, to me, I mean, that means that well, he gives a lot. This is like a big concept, but uh, he gives a lot of examples, and I'll let you you take a crack at breaking this down too. But just at a high level, he's saying that uh, all our problems are just due to insufficient knowledge. Like whether it's a plague that comes and hits us, or whether even ranging to our own mortality. Like he's saying that you know, as long as the laws of physics don't prevent something, um, we should be able to solve it. Like all problems are soluble, right? right. And old age and dying like there's no laws of physics that prevent that it's just a it's just a insufficient knowledge is what he argues and anyways he 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 goes on by talking about optimism and how it's really just the best the most rational mindset to have while approaching problems um i know we can get more into the specifics but uh what was your what was your take from that i thought it was a really unique definition i had never heard that definition before and i had certainly never thought of optimism or pessimism in that way before. Um, I, what I, I think it's important to understand now I, I, it's, it's completely consistent with the two premises of the book. Problems will occur, problems are solvable. If that is the case, if we will encounter problems, but we can solve them, then in fact, evil is a thing that can continuously be conquered by rinsing and repeating the notion of conjecture and criticism. That we have this tool that we can use for solving problems mm -hmm. that really should work for any problem because if it's occurring in our universe, it obeys the laws of physics. We ought to be able to understand what is occurring and then to change you know, how it is occurring in order to address it. So if, we, if it is allowable, if, if the problem can be solved, then we should be able to solve it. And I was thinking about, about this in con connection with um, his definition of wealth, which I thought was an interesting definition as well. Oh, yeah. The uh, wealth is the repertoire of physical changes one is capable of causing. And from that, we essentially understand that optimism is a framework, or rather I would just say conjecture and criticism in developing better explanations and better theories is a mechanism by which we use to expand our wealth. And mm -hmm. I like the example he gives of a person who dies of the cold while sitting on a pile of leaves. Why did that person die? Was it because of the elements? Not really. He died because he didn't know how to make a fire. If he yes. knew how to make a fire, he would have been able to survive being out in the cold. And it was an information was gap. Exactly right. It was a lack of wealth. In this case, you know, his ability to cause change, the chemical reaction leaves into, into, into fire. He didn't have that possession and therefore he died of the cold. And I thought that was a really interesting framework by which we understand problems more generally that no, there, there's no reason why any one problem should cause us to lose hope. We should always count on ourselves to under to essentially view problems as knowledge gaps 
and then look mm-hmm. to build that knowledge. And it doesn't mean that that process is easy or that it's inevitable. He gives the examples. There are civilizations that really did go away because they couldn't solve a problem they were faced with. So yeah. there is real danger in this world. And there is, a, there is a requirement on us to solve these problems. But as long as we have this framework in place, there's really no limit to the kind of problems that we should be able to solve. As long as you know the, the, the solution that we come up with is allowed by the laws of physics, then we should be able to figure out how to do it. And so I thought... It made sense. I thought that was a convincing definition of optimism and a, you know, it certainly was consistent with the rest of the book that we've had so far. Yeah. I like the, I like the example he gave in this chapter about um, there's a, a man who's sentenced to death or sentenced to life in yeah. prison, I think right. death. And uh, the prisoner makes a agreement with the King or whoever. And he says, okay, give me one year. And if I can teach this horse to speak after a year, <laughs> then you have to let me free. And like the king says like, okay, yeah, fine. Um, and then like all the other prisoners are like calling him stupid. Like, what are you doing? You're not gonna be able to teach the horse. And he's like, well, I don't really have to. Like a, a lot can change. Like the king could die. The horse could die. Like I could die. Like maybe I could get the horse to speak. Right. Conjure, come up with a conjuring trick to get right. the horse to speak. And just, I liked how that tied in with this concept of universality. Um, because like in this, in this case, like that is the best frame to take. The most rational frame to take is to be optimistic about being able to teach this horse because there's a a multitude of other possibilities that could get this guy off the chopping block or like out of the guillotine or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really like that. And then I think that that could also be, uh, expanded to like things like affirmations or something like where you're repeatedly writing something down that you want and it's like i think one of the benefits of that is that you're not laying out the specific groundwork for how you're going to get there you're intentionally leaving it vague the pathway to get there vague and uh, um, able to be made on the fly because even in this chapter he talks and he says that it's impossible to predict the way things are going to turn out because we don't even know the mechanisms of which we'll be using to get to those des- destinations. Right. Right. Absolutely. And he gives the example in that case of the population bomb that people were concerned about yeah. population growing and us not being able to feed them. And it wasn't as if that couldn't have been a problem. I mean, of course it could have been a problem, but just because you know that the population will grow by some amount and you can only feed with current technology, you know, a lower amount, that's a concern. It drives a need to understand how to feed more people. But we have no reason to say that we had discovered the end-all be-all of agriculture, and therefore we won't be able to feed more people, which is what we did with the Green Revolution. I mean, it's always, it's, it's I think this is a better definition of optimism because, and he gives this idea of, of the blind optimist who just think that yeah. things work out. And of course, that's completely ridiculous. For one, we know that that's not the case because civilizations have gone extinct. So we know that it doesn't just work itself out, even if you want it to. You have to do the work to figure out the knowledge that you need for surviving. But despite that being the case, it's also not true that somebody can predict with accuracy what future knowledge will hold and what technologies will come from that knowledge. And so at any point, we find ourselves compelled to essentially understand what we would like to know. But realizing that our knowledge of future knowledge is always, in fact, it's a, we, we can't predict future knowledge, which I'm going to come back to in, in a moment, but we also can't predict the outcomes of future knowledge, technology, et cetera, that it will lead to. And so 
we always will have problems, but there's never a problem so big that we should give up hope because we can't predict the impact we will have uh, with, with future abilities. Um, I just finished a really interesting book. It's really far out. It's one of these, you know, kind of borderline science fiction, science books of the, about the future called The Millennial Project. And this, this guy lays out, you know, a 1,000 year plan for how we could go to the stars and live among the galaxies. And yeah. it's, of course, pie in the sky and far out and everything. But I appreciate that he's putting in some mental effort to try to think these things through. Un- un- undoubtedly, the plan that he gives will not be what we do. Um, that goes without saying. But I still appreciate the effort of him thinking that it, that it, that the, the optimism that, that it could be done and here's a way that it might be accomplished. I, I, like, I like people that have big ideas, even if they're crazy, because the alternative is just to bury your head in the stand and you know, be a fucking dork or something. I don't know what you call it, but... <laughs> Know, some low energy goober gobber or something. I don't have people like that. I like people that have big ideas and they're crazy because who knows? Maybe they, they do work out and maybe they lead to something else that we haven't even thought of yet. Yeah, yeah, that's a. And then he also talked about how societies um, and golden ages and how they're all, the golden ages always coincide when societies err on the side of optimism, when they take optim- optimistic perspectives on things. And he contrasts that with like parochial um viewpoints right like when uh i think he used like italy as an example or greece as an example like uh they had this this big uh, golden age at the turn of the century or you know in the early ad years and then eventually the spartans and then took over and their totalitarian like mindset where like right they, they kind of just brainwashed all the kids they brainwashed all the students into believing a certain way and they didn't re- they didn't really foster this environment of uh, conjecture and criticism and how that just like kind of led to the decline of Greece um, from that point forward. And then same thing with like, I think you talked about Florence, 14th century Florence, Italy, kind of the same thing. They had these, uh, I think there were the Medinis or some group. I don't know. I think it's the men. Yeah. They came to power and they brought forth like all this prosperation. I don't know if that's a word. But prosperity there you in, go. in their uh, <laughs> nation, and that's when you saw people like Michelangelo and like Da Vinci and uh, Machiavelli come out. But then, uh, eventually, the societal rule changed, and then all the progress went away with it. Well, and, and it was interesting too that in that episode, the bonfire of the vanities, right, where the monks basically uh, took over and said, you know, this is nonsense, and you know, yeah. burned the paintings down and. Uh, again, it, it's, it's worth this idea of having to defend an enlightenment civilization, even if you're an optimist, doesn't make you an, an invincible entity. The Greeks were destroyed by the Spartans. The Florence, the Golden Age of Florence was destroyed by you know, the backward thinking monk yeah. that led the, the rain on it. I mean, it's scary to think that, that, that this could all be lost. He goes on to say later on in the book that we live in a, in a, in a fairly unusual long period of this kind yeah, of yeah. taking place um which is i think all the more pressing that all of us are beholden to be able to defend our civilization we ought to be able to, to explain an argument why this is worth defending um to make sure that we can in fact defend the biggest arguments against it that seems like a worthwhile skill that we all should have at our disposal yeah, and talking about the the bonfires and the book burnings is essentially what it was. Yeah, um, I was reading an article not too long ago that was making drawing a comparison between these book burnings of like back in the day, 
and uh, essentially they're making a, a link between that and like what's happening right now with like Twitter and YouTube and certain voices on the internet. Right. Like it's literally just a modern age book burning is what we're doing by shutting down these people's tweets, shutting down these people's voices and their social media profiles. And it's oh. like, how, like once you read it, it's like, wow, that's like pretty obvious, like what we're doing. But like for some reason, society is still okay with it. Like we still accept it. We keep, we still use these services. We still use Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. So I, I don't know. That was a, that was a big, uh, a, a big idea that I came across this last week. Yeah, I think it's an interesting comparison. And, you know, I think I am still of the camp, usually, I would say, if not always, that the, the best way to defeat bad ideas is with better ideas and better argument. Yeah, those are the tools that we... See if they stand on their own. Exactly right. We should be, we should be challenging the idea... In debate and discussion, you know, let's borrow the parlance of this book of criticism and conjecture, right? That we always are on the hunt for better ideas. And um, when we burn an idea or when we destroy an idea without discussing it, um, you know, that seems to me a, a betrayal of our own values when we do that. And I think it's beneath us to behave in that way. I'm not saying there aren't, you know, horrible exceptions like you know, I'm okay with taking down child pornography, for example. I don't, that's not really an argument. I don't, or a, a position in, in some sense. So I'm okay with some level of censorship, but um, I think it's, it's far and in, in few between. And I would rather rely on the, you know, quote unquote censorship, by which I mean argument debate of other people to challenge bad ideas than to just delete them or something. I mean, for yeah. one, there's a deal with it, right? I mean, they could just go find another platform to go to. This doesn't seem sustainable even because they just could go somewhere else. And now you just have, you know, shipped the battlefield in some sense to another yeah. location. I mean, yeah, these, and they really, these people really can't go anywhere else because a lot of these social medias have like essentially a monopoly. Um, but I want to ask, did you, have you been following this Brett Weinstein situation? No, I haven't. Um, yeah. If anybody follows us on Twitter, I will, I will admit I have not been on Twitter very much uh, these past few weeks. Um not really in any for reason other than just trying to spend more time preparing for these interviews. I have to like reread this book a few times, like to understand it. So <laughs> it's been most of my, yeah. most of my focus, but. At, at a high level, he's fighting the censorship and the book burning. Um, he's talking about, he's been talking to a lot of doctors and researchers about this antiviral drug that's supposedly supposed to cure COVID or, you know, just greatly reduce the symptoms, like save lives basically. Hmm. And he i mean i don't know if it actually works or not because there's science on both sides that says it works and it says it doesn't work so right who knows but there is an overwhelming body of evidence and meta-analyses that show that it works it's called ivermectin hmm. um, and weinstein's been having experts on to talk about it but what happens is he gets flagged by youtube and he's getting shut down and he's getting censored to talk about it hmm. and his his uh, offense is that in the rule book for twitter or for YouTube, it specifically says that you cannot promote any any sort of talk, any sort of speech that promotes uh, I ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. Like it just specifically oh, drugs. So it's like as if YouTube has this this grand power to know like what know the answer if it works or not when there really hasn't been that a, a big enough body of yeah, interesting if it works or not. So. 
that's the fight he's fighting. I think Scott Adams got in on it. He's trying to help him out, but um, the Dark Horse podcast might be a yeah. So yeah, I I know I know of the podcast uh, for sure. Um, I've mentioned Eric Weinstein on the show before as well. I actually just finished reading a book called Science Since Babylon, which is a book recommended by Eric Weinstein. So interesting. I will have to follow this a little bit uh, more. I'm always curious to see what the Weinstein brothers are up to. They, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's really scary. Interesting ideas, like that. Oh. Like Weinstein, the Weinstein brothers are like respected, respectable scientists. Like they're respectable right. scientists in their fields, and they had more respected um, experts in their fields on to discuss this. And it's like YouTube says we can't hear this conversation. I don't know. It's just like a little uh, questionable. I, I probably well, just got our uh, our video D D rank by the way with yeah, all these keywords. Right. There you go. So, sorry for that. No, it's uh, interesting. Um, something I have to follow up more on, and yeah, it certainly doesn't seem like you know. It seems that there ought to be a better way than just taking a video down. Not, I mean, I, I don't know what that would be, but I mean, it seems like we ought to find a better way to address debate and that. So we'll have to see where it goes. I mean, it's like what you said, like, you know, bad ideas should just be able to be out there. And if they stand on their own good, if they don't, then. Right. Then don't. No, that's that's what I. Yeah. It I starts getting fishy when they say like, OK, you can say you can have ideas about anything except for these two drugs or these two things. Yeah, it doesn't. It's like, yeah, it, it, it does. Like I said, I it certainly does not lead to a feeling of reaching a conclusive end because you're not having the debate it basically yeah. what it feels like yeah no i i, I agree with that I think and it sounds like this is the type of behavior that led to the demise of greece and italy and all these other um nations that had short enlightenment periods yeah i mean it certainly sounds that way hopefully we can oh maybe maybe they'll listen maybe the people at youtube will listen to our talk here on optimism and change their course who knows we'll have to keep our fingers crossed yeah, I'm optimistic for that. <laughs> I, I am as well. Um, wanted to mention a few more things. I wanted to talk about this notion here. The unpredictability of future knowledge is a necessary condition for infinite growth of that knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I, this idea of, of the unpredictability of future knowledge to me has interesting political consequences. I don't know that we'll be able to get into all of them today, but I did want to outline some of that, but I didn't want to get that phrase out there and kind of get your take on it. Um, so let's, well, how about we do this? Think about that. And while you're thinking about it, let's do the movie review. And I'll talk okay. to this and move on from there. So we have All another right. movie review today uh, from our, our official, yes, from our official R&R film correspondent. So Joe, when you're ready, let's hear from our, uh, our film correspondent. Okay, so this, this movie for this week is called Army of the Dead. And it's available on Netflix. So no excuses not to watch this one because everyone has Netflix. Of course. All right. What it's about. After a zombie outbreak, Las Vegas has been quarantined and is now completely controlled by the undead. Scott Ward, a hero of the Vegas zombie war, now has 32 hours to put together a team to enter the quarantine zone, break into a Vegas vault and get out with $200 million before the whole city is nuked. Is it good? More or less. More if you're a fan of writer slash director Zack Snyder and slash or zombie movies. 
less if you're looking for action movie with memorable characters or we're hoping for something unique in the genre of Snyder's Au revoir. Myself, I'm somewhere in between. I'm not a big Snyder guy. He's gifted at finding captivating shots, less so stringing them together to compelling narrative. Zombies, I'm more in on. Not so much that I stuck with the overwhelming dreariness of The Walking Dead past season two, but it's hard to make a zombie movie that isn't entertaining. Thankfully, Snyder realizes that, and largely focuses on making a fun movie rather than being diverted by the loftier ambitions outside his skill set as a storyteller that have plagued his post 300 work. Indeed, lack of ambition might be the movie's greatest strength. Snyder casts aside the self-importance of his superhero films and unlike his lone previous original film, the disastrously nonsensical Sucker Punch, he sticks to a straightforward storyline. In fact, it sometimes feels like a collection of his greatest hits from previous works. The most obvious influence in his first and still best film, the 2004 remake of Dawn of the Dead, that featured both a ragtag group of people battling zombies and a deranged sense of humor. It goes beyond that, though. Like his Watchmen ad adaptation, the film peaks early with an opening credit montage. Here, depicting the creativity a ridiculous fall of Las Vegas to the zombie hordes, and there's fun in seeing star Dave Batista, further proving himself to be the best of the former wrestlers turned actors, assembles his team of mercenaries the same way Batfleck brought together the Justice League. Thankfully, uh, I just got that Batfleck, Ben Affleck, Batman. Thankfully, Batista does it in much less time. Where Snyder and the film fall flat are the attempts to graft an unneeded depth onto the film. Batista is forced to carry a hack and eyed storyline attempting to reconnect with his estranged daughter that needlessly complicates a movie that has no business being two hours and 28 minutes. It does better by its characters when it's simply banking on the strength of its casting. As with Batista or comedian Tim uh, Tig Notaro as a wise ass helicopter pilot or the oddball chemistry that develops between Omari Hardwick's veteran zombie killer and Matthias Schweighofer's innocent safe cracker. It's those two who share the film's alone, legit legitimately moving the moment. It doesn't approach the heights of the genre, but Army of the Dead is still a solid return to form and fun for Snyder. Grade C+. Other films to watch. For more of the same, but better, Dawn of the Dead, 2004. For Zombies plus World War II, Overlord. For Zombies plus Public Transportation, Train to Busan. Yes, what do you think? I, have, you, I, have you watched this movie? I have or, not, but I... Snyder's work? I, so I actually am a fan of the Watchmen movie that he made. And I also am a fan of the two movies that our correspondent mentioned at the end. I'm a fan of Day of the Dead. And I'm also a fan of... Train to Busan. Those are both good movies, and I recommend all three of them. Um, and I was happy to watch the the Snyder cut of the Justice League, and I also mm -hmm. recommend that as well. If anybody has HBO Max, uh, watch it. Four hours well spent. Um, it's a long one. Bring a change of underwear. Um, let's let's get back to this. So I, I I have to wrap up 
a short episode for today, but I want to I want to talk about this idea of the unpredictability of future knowledge because it uh, is an important idea in the way that we approach um, risk. And the reason I say that is because um, I'm going to give a big idea, Joe, and then I'm going to have to cut the uh, the video. So. I have to respond next time. I I would argue that capitalism is an ideology that ties very nicely in with this idea of the beginning of infinity. And the reason is this, Um, because the future is unknown, because the, the, um, the future knowledge is unpredictable, every action that we make about the future is a, is a gamble. The risk. We don't know what we're doing. We have to make a prediction, and then we either are correct or we are wrong. And it seems to me that in all cases where possible, we ought to give people the ability to make their own risks. And in order to do that, people have to have private property in order to determine if they do or do not want to wager in a particular way on a particular bet on the future. And that capitalism, meaning just private property, gives people the mechanism by which they can own things and then wager on different outcomes depending on what they think the future will hold. Nobody knows the future, so no one should be able to tell you what to do. Again, there are some obvious exceptions. Sometimes we don't have the ability for everybody to have their own opinion and there had to make one action for a large number of people. That would be collective decision-making. I think there's a role for that. And then we have our democratic system that we talked about earlier, where we make decisions and we go from power by that process. I think wherever possible, we ought to give people individual choice. And to do that, we need to localize risk. And we localize risk to their property by one, allowing them to own it, but then by two, being able to gamble it on various predictions about uh, the future. And so I think in a world where the future is unknown, people ought to be given wide latitude to make their own decisions and that we allow them to do so by allowing them to own their own things. Um, and that is my defense of capitalism on the premises thus far laid out in the beginning of infinity. Oh boy. Now we're definitely going to get canceled from YouTube. <laughs> well, we're going out with a bang. Um, <laughs> no, I really enjoyed this chapter so much so that if I could recommend that people only read one chapter of this book, mm-hmm. it would be this chapter. Um, if David Deutsch ever listens to this episode or ever hears of our show, I would him to just release this as a PDF to the public. I think it's that important because it lays out what a scientific civilization is while at the same time explaining why it's important to defend such a civilization, one based on conjecture and criticism. And um, I, think it is a, I think it is important that people like you and myself who find ourselves living in such a civilization that we understand why it is valuable, why it is important, and how to defend it um, in order that it may be preserved beyond us for other people to enjoy as well. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think that this is, uh, uh, the, I thought the universality chapter was pretty, pretty important too. Yep. And uh, that's, that's been in the back ever since I read that chapter, it's kind of been on the back of my mind reading through all this, but um, yeah, definitely builds up on each other. And this optimism chapter was, was, was big. I'm glad that we gave one episode to it and didn't try to combo it. Yes, it would have been a lot to, to fit in. Um, 
But this book, we're only halfway done. We still have, you know, nine more chapters to go. So hopefully people uh, that are enjoying our channel are enjoying this book discussion. We'll be picking this up again next week with further discussion uh, about the book. We plan on going through every chapter and talking about it. So we're looking forward to it as well. Uh, I've enjoyed the book and I'm going rereading and learning more than I missed the first time as well. But alas, Joe, our time together has come to an end today. Uh, I'll give you a chance and your final closing thoughts before we wrap up today's episode. Oh uh, yeah, I think our, our guests, our, our users, our viewers and listeners are glad to uh, have you back on the show. I know you took a, a brief stint last weekend, but thank you. Yes, luckily uh, we found some coverage last minute. Um, yes, with the cover, and I think she did an awesome job. Yes, happy to have her on the show, and uh, be sure to check her out at Gina and T, her podcast, and um, a lot of fun happening over there as well. And um, we saw her in the background as well episode before last so it's good to kind of have around front of the camera as well it's good that's right some nice plot continuity there for yeah. our fans of the show yeah <laughs> very good everybody well um we will see you all next time sure sure to follow us on twitter at rose underscore rhetoric go to our youtube channel roses and rhetoric instagram at roses underscore rhetoric of course follow joe on both platforms at jose four underscores cuervo and we will see you all next time everybody has a good rest of your day